Hey guys, welcome back to Set Your Expectations. This is the podcast where we challenge different societal misconceptions uh, about different aspects of life by showcasing a new guest each episode, diving into their passions and experiences with those things. I'm your host, Joe, and my co-host, Josh, is going to tell you who we have today. Well, Joe, continuing our trend of returning guests, we had Erin Garropy back. Uh, you'll know, remember the last time she was here, she was doing her uh, was it graduate work. Now, though, she is the executive director of the Independent Collegian, which is the University of Toledo's student-run uh, newspaper. And boy, did I learn a ton of stuff that I had no idea about journalism, about running a newspaper, about how all that stuff works. Uh, man, it's, it, was, it was great having her here. And she, as always, just like one of the smartest people I've ever talked to. And it's just fun talking to her. Yeah, you ain't lying. There's a ton of facts here, lots of stuff, and a really good balance of fun and uh, facts. So... Strap in, have fun. journalism okay and why did you choose journalism uh, I didn't really um, it was kind of weird I, I had been doing my master's at the University of Toledo and part of my assistantship I had to teach a couple courses my first year of grad school and then I got to do something different for my second year because I'm not really into the whole teaching thing so I applied for a fellowship at the University of Toledo Press and I was doing editing there for that volume I mentioned it on the last show of Northwest Ohio History. Mm -hmm. So I did all of the editing for footnoting and things like that. And at the end of the year, there wasn't a grad student to replace me for the following year. So I asked the director of the library if I could just stay on part time. And she said, no, we don't have the budget for it, but how would you like to run the Independent Collegian instead? So just asking for a job got me a different job offer. <laughs> Absolutely. That's awesome. And it was really convenient. It was right across the hallway. It's in the same building where I was working for the UT Press. So I just kind of like snuck in there to this new office and I took over in May. So I, I graduated the beginning of May and I took over May 22nd, I think, is when I started. I think that goes to show like a lot of people don't understand that asking for things really is the first step to getting things. Yeah. <laughs> you got to put your neck out there. Yeah. If you don't, you're never going to get anything. Mm -hmm. Are you are you happy since then? It's about almost a year since May. Yeah, mm -hmm. um, it's it's really rewarding work. Um, it's very weird to be in charge of a newspaper when I've never written a newspaper article before. Mm -hmm. I don't even think I've written a letter to the editor ever. <laughs> um, I have no experience with journalism, but I I kind of demonstrated in my interview that I was able to learn things quickly, and most of my job just makes sure that you know, we're, we stay up and running. So mm -hmm. I do a lot of financial stuff. I had to do the annual budget, which I never thought I'd have to do. Um, but the students, they, they operate as their own newspaper. We don't have any oversight from the university. So they have their own hierarchy with editor in chief, section editors, staff writers. They're all in charge of their own hiring and firing of people that work for them. Wow. Um, I'm just there to advise. Um, so it's. How really many awesome. people are there? 
Uh, we have about 10 editors and like 15 to 20 staff writers, depending. Wow. Uh, we have a photography team, graphic design, and then sales team. And then they all come to you, pretty much? Yeah. Because you run the whole thing? Yeah, they, um, I mean, they indirectly report to me. So any newspaper things with um, articles or things like that, that all goes to the editor-in-chief. I don't have any say over what we publish. Um, the sales team reports directly to me, and um, my husband is the sales manager, so I brought him on just to sell ads here and there, uh, and then we lost both of the other people that were also on the sales team, so he was the only one for about seven months. So they report either to him if they're on the business side or me um, if they have general questions. But Since you said you didn't really know a whole lot about journalism before you took the job on, how would you describe journalism to somebody who doesn't really have a good concept of what it is? Um, I think a lot of people have the misconception right now that we have a lot more power than we do. Um, you know, people always, you hear that in class, and I'm surprised at how many of my students that I teach will just talk about the media as this kind of boogeyman figure. Mm. Um, or that, you know, it's, it's the liberal media or the conservative media. We don't really have that much freedom. There's a lot more research that goes into it. Um, obviously, we can't just create stories to cover on campus. They have to be things that are actually happening. Um, the only thing that we get to kind of write whatever we want is our opinion page. Um, but it's a lot more fact-checking, a lot more like nitty-gritty stylistic choices that I wasn't aware of. Um, so I was an English major for undergrad and grad, and we use MLA formatting. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm like an Oxford comma person, and like I really care about that kind of grammar stuff. Um, AP style is a completely different bag, and it has all of these weird rules that I wasn't aware of. So I, they offered to interview me on, um, we scheduled an interview on Tuesday for the job, and I read the AP style book by Friday when the interview was. Like, I don't know what this is. I don't know how it works. Um, but a lot of stuff goes into each article that, you know, I had no idea of before. You know, you have to have three sources per article. So you can't just, you know, if you guys put on an event, they couldn't only interview you guys. They have to interview people that were at the event. And if there were people that didn't want the event to happen, they have to interview those people. For every article, no matter For every article, three sources, yep. So they have to corroborate everything that they publish. It's all um, really big fact checking. Uh, we can't publish anything that isn't true or that, you know, kind of gives us an impression of bias. So. Mm -hmm. We've run into some issues with that in the past, and you know, we're student journalists. They don't, UT doesn't have a journalism major, so this is the only place that they can come to learn print journalism. So it's still, it's, it's a learning paper, but this is where they get all of that experience to get them into a journalism job when they graduate. So are you getting, I know UT is a school that brings people in from all over the world. Are you getting people with a <clears throat> culturally diverse background in the IC? Um, yes and no. Uh, we were very proud of the fact that I think for the last six or seven years it's been um, woman run. I found out at our editorial meeting on Tuesday or Thursday that it's been female faculty advisors and it's been female editor-in-chiefs for at least the past five years. So mm -hmm. that part's really great. Our board is chaired by a woman. Um, and then any time that we have students that come from a more diverse background, we always get them on any kind of staff writing we can. We do get a lot of international students that'll apply for the sales positions. Okay, so what what would you say has been like the most unexpected thing uh, that you've had to 
pretty much like step two since you came in in May. What's something that you didn't see coming? Um, that I have to be doing a lot more ad sales. <laughs> um, I have to do a lot of selling and, and like kind of managing that sales part. I thought that my job was going to entail a lot more of the journalism side of things, um, serving in a more like direct advisory position with those students. But we're not funded by the university, so that sets us apart from a lot of university newspapers. A lot of them are just funded by the university that they work for um, or that they cover. We broke from UT in 2000 and became independent and were run by the nonprofit that we are funded by. So I think they brought me on in part because of my background in nonprofits and grant writing and things like that. But a lot of my job is trying to get to that sales quota every week. So mm -hmm. that has been giving me ulcers. But I've gotten to do a lot of fundraising. Um, and even though we've been around for next year, will be our 100th anniversary of being on the UT community. We, uh, we don't really have like the donor base um, that an established nonprofit should have. So mm -hmm. even if you just go back to 2000 when we started as a nonprofit, that gives us 18 years where we should be cultivating donors and having grants that we mm -hmm. regularly apply for. So I'm kind of in this weird position where we're an established nonprofit, but I have to like introduce us to the community and kind of fundraise as though we're a new nonprofit. Okay. So that's been probably my biggest challenge after ad sales. <laughs> Rebranding yourself, pretty much. Yes, okay. that part's really tricky. Yeah, so they give you the job, but they were like, "Yeah, we're gonna give you the job, but you also got to start over." <laughs> yeah, they hadn't done any fundraising before, and most of our board are like really strong newspaper people or people that have sold a lot of ads. You know, mm -hmm. they're they're sales guys. So they so want for numbers. They mm -hmm. want us to just you know sell the crap out of some ads. But for me, I'm like, well, we should be getting a lot of our fundraising from grants and donors because we're a nonprofit. We should be capitalizing on that. So I'm kind of trying to prove myself as a fundraiser and also as a salesperson, which was very unexpected as an English major. Man, let you hold the bag on that one. <laughs> do you, so how many, how many writers do you have for you? Um, like 15 to 20 staff writers, that kind of fluctuates. And then we have five section editors um, a managing editor and editor-in-chief so they all they all do writing as well um, and then you know they always participate in the editorial that we write that's from the whole board so with that many people on your writing staff does every member essentially have to bring updates or new stories to you every month or do some people pretty much just get to be floaters and come whenever they have a piece uh, well it works different based on each section so we have um, news community opinion and sports um, so for everything but opinion, basically, they, they operate on their own deadlines, which is pretty standard across the board. So our paper is printed on Wednesday morning, so the editors have to have everything completely ready to go by Tuesday nights at 11 is when they have to submit to the printer. So for their staff writers, if they're assigned to cover an event on campus or something in the community, they have to have their stories to their section editors by Sunday nights. So they have time to edit that and get whatever things fixed for Tuesday. Um, the only one that's kind of different is the opinion page because um, those are written more as columns and can take a little more research into it um, where it's almost kind of like mini papers that those staff writers will write for the opinion pages. So you might get four columns throughout the semester and then you'd have that scheduled out. They try to schedule the whole semester for that so that we would know, okay, Joe's going to be doing these four issues where we can expect a column from him so they can plan out the opinion page because that's the only one that we kind of 
we can control what we're going to write on the opinion page. We can't control what news events are going to happen on campus. Right, and that actually, that's where I was going to head next. So do you find yourself pressed for, like, <clears throat> how far out are you able to go as far as the range of topics? Because I'm sure there's only so much that technically is involved with UT, but now that you guys are independent and not necessarily tethered to them, are you able to report any news that you want, or does it have to be within a certain wheelhouse? Uh, kind of within a certain wheelhouse. So we publish news that's important to members of the UT community, so that's students, faculty, staff, and then we do distribute papers off campus as well, so like a couple businesses downtown and places by Westgate and Cricket West, things like that. So if it's related to the UT community is what we try to publish first. Um, so for like that news stuff, it'll be if there's any like administrative changes, like our physician's assistant program just lost its accreditation that directly affects thousands of students um, and wow. prospective students especially. Um, so that, that's the kind of stuff that would be the, we have to cover that. You know, there's no excuse for not having that in the paper. Um, but then we also publish stuff that goes on in the community. Um, so if a UT professor is giving a talk at the main library downtown, we would want to cover that. There was an artist that recently had a show. Um, he was from, he graduated from UT and he did um, those phone booths. I don't know if you saw those around Toledo. They were old phone booths that were set up as art exhibits. They, we had one at the UT library. I know for sure they had one at the downtown library where you could hear immigrant stories. Um, which was a really cool art piece. And we covered that even though it wasn't necessarily a UT thing. It was something that was all throughout the city of Toledo, but that certainly has ties to a member of the UT community. Um, so we would cover things like that. And then opinion is just anything that those students would want to write about um, that go to UT. What kind of um, process do you put your like writers through when they come on to work for you? Um, like it, it just depends on you know what section they'd be going for um, so obviously we don't want to put somebody in the sports section that doesn't care at all about sports or that wouldn't be able to go to sporting events um, that one's really important same thing with news we need to make sure that like people can actually go and cover stuff consistently to all the like, right all the news all the sporting yeah and not always like the really sexy ones you know like we cover student government meetings and we try to cover some of the faculty meetings and things like that a lot of the procedural stuff they might not want to cover, but that's where you know big decisions are made for mm -hmm. the campus. So we need to know what's going on there. Um, our biggest thing, though, is for um, copy editors, we will usually have an editing test where we'll give them something, and they need to prove that they can actually edit something before they come on. Staff writers, though, um, because we are student-run and it's the only place where they can learn it on campus, if you're willing to write... Um, for free, we can't pay any of our staff writers <laughs> to get that experience and to learn how a newspaper works. We are almost always willing to give people a shot um, as long as they can meet their deadlines and they turn in what they're supposed to, then they're, they're able to stay and keep getting that experience. I get all of the great parts of teaching working at the paper, so you know, getting to work one-on-one -on -one with writers and getting to see how they grow and evolve as, as writers and professionals. Um, without all of the really shitty parts of teaching, which is like grading a bunch of papers or dealing with plagiarism. Um, I, get, I get the best students on campus because they're all there just because they want to learn journalism, they want to write for a newspaper, and they want to get better at what they're doing. So I get kind of like the best of the best over there. It's really nice. Yeah, the role of like mentor or advisor is always going to be more respected, I think, than teacher. Yeah. Simply because like your teacher is 
they're, they're just here to make sure you're getting shit done. Whereas your advisor, like, you can you go to, like, I, I need help. Help me out. Yeah. Show, show me what the difference and is. And it comes down to authority. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, it always comes down to authority. Yeah. <laughs> just, you're the uncle. Right. Or the aunt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they know that I'm I'm willing to do whatever I need to to help them. And, you yeah, know, I guess that is it's true. really rewarding. Have you had a lot of new staff writers come out since May? A lot of people who weren't with the IC before you were there? Yeah, a handful. Um, not too many, though. And and honestly, I don't have a lot of one-on-one experience with the staff writers because we will have so many, and there will be a lot of turnover sometimes with that. Um, but because they operate as their own newspaper, you know, that if they're a news reporter, they report to Bryce. They don't report to me. Um, they need to get their deadlines in to make sure that he has their stuff from them. Um, I don't really see them too much um, because most of their stuff can be done remotely too so they'll email their section editor their stuff they don't need to come into the office to write Um, so the only way I get to interact with these people are by doing my weekly critiques Uh, so I print off like Microsoft Word copies of all of the articles and I go through and I look for their specific error patterns or how they write and that's how I get to know them as people and then it's really weird when I then meet them in person and I'm like, oh yeah, you're the person that like writes in passive voice all the time or you're the person that has really good vocabulary. It can never be your text friend. I just feel like it would be a lot of just, oh, look, look at all the mistakes Josh makes me text No, and that's the worst part. Like it, it always feels like I'm being so critiquey with them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I like gave them a disclaimer at the beginning of the academic year. I said, if you're doing something well, I probably won't point it out as much because I know that if you're putting it in there, you know it's because it needs to be in there. So you know that the stuff that you're doing is good. I'm going to point out the stuff that maybe you don't notice because my undergrad in English and then my grad degree in English really taught me how to pick up on those patterns. And I catch things that a lot of people don't necessarily look at. So then they kind of got a little uncomfortable, I think, at the meeting last night because I can give examples now of saying, you know, this is the person who maybe uses forms of the to be verb. So am, is, are, was, were a lot, which is a passive verb. Like these people maybe use it the most. And then I can tell you these are the three writers who use it the least. And so I think as the person being judged, I can see why that would make you a little uncomfortable. But then I can also use that to say like, okay, so I know that like I need to work with Joe on making sure he's not writing with passive verbs. And then that's the thing that we can kind of like hone in because that could be the only thing that you're doing wrong Mm -hmm. and everything else is fine. I don't have anything else to say to you. And then once you fix that, I'm just like, okay, well, good job. I guess you don't need me anymore. (laughs) Most of these are students too. So, I mean, ideally they're all students. Yeah. They're here to learn. Yeah. So that's what you're teaching them. You know, they, yeah. if they don't have an open mind, I don't know why they're not in college. And and they all want that feedback. You know, I told them at the beginning, I said, you know, I'm I'm the kind of person that I do really well if my my professors kind of tear me apart on my feedback. My my first feedback in grad school, I cried outside the classroom when I read it. Um, and I, I'll never forget now that Dr. Fitz called me out because I, I had a sentence that I started like, it's interesting to note that whatever. And she circled it and wrote like in really big markings. She's like, if it's interesting, we know it is because you're talking about it. You don't need to say that it's interesting. So now I've never oh used that God. word again. <laughs> and Holy it crushed me. But then I've, you know, now I don't write stupid shit like that in my papers. So I told my students, I'm like, if I'm ever like giving you feedback that you feel is a little too harsh, I can start pointing out the good things that you're doing. I just know that, like, if I need to work on something, I want to know what those things are so I don't keep looking like an idiot each week. Maybe and don't follow your savage <laughs> teachers on Twitter either. Because, 
a cold slap in the darkness. Like, right now, I'm imagining you tearing those kids up the way your teacher tore you up, except in 140 characters. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, uh, I, don't, I don't hire staff writers who write fake news. No. And there's and they don't do anything as stupid as what I did by pointing out that things were interesting. It's all like the smallest things that I pick up on. But that if they fix those, then it's going to really make their writing stand out. So it's not like they have glaring errors. They're not being stupid like I was. They, they're all strong writers. So I just pick out like the really nitpicky stuff. It's um, been a long time since you wrote those songs. I think that <laughs> you, can, you can put it behind you. <laughs> I'm going to hold on to it forever, forever so that like Dr. Fitz is in my head pushing me to be a better writer. You're going to get a tattoo. <laughs> your tattoo on your back is just going to say, it's, it's interesting, interesting to know. and then ellipses. <laughs> Yeah, so that was really embarrassing at the time, but now I'm a really good writer. So. It all worked out. What misconceptions do you notice from the new students that you do take on, uh, the new writers that you do take on, that you kind of have to realign in these people who haven't had experiences with journalism yet? Uh, well, most of our students, I would say, don't have too much experience with journalism. We try to get as many students as we can at like the freshman and sophomore level so they can grow through the paper. Um, and we'll get kind of a mix of communications majors and English majors are the, probably the most popular ones that we get. So on the English side of things, the thing that we really have to work on is teaching them a new style of writing. Um, so it's really weird to go from writing, you know, more academic papers to journalist writing, which is like one sentence per paragraph, two sentences per paragraph. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you have to make sure that you introduce people appropriately and it, it's, you know, so-and-so says, not says so-and-so at the end of a quote. And, you know, all these weird finicky rules that you pick up on if you are a communications major, but definitely not if you're an English major with no writing experience. Yeah, I think my favorite editor quote is just, nobody knows who that is. Yeah. It's like, so you, you get to, everyone needs to be introduced who they are, what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Nobody knows who that is. You can't just say somebody's name. Nobody knows who that is. Right. And, and that's like the really small stuff that we'll, we'll have errors on. So an opinion piece um, just said, you know, when Trump took office and AP style, you have to introduce them by their title the first time that you do it and you do their full name. So it would be when President Donald Trump took office. Every time after that, you can refer to them just by last name or by, you know, Mr. Trump. So that was, that was a mistake that we made and it was in an opinion piece. So it was a lot of explaining that, yes, even though it's opinion and, and you have whatever feelings you have about Trump, um, you still have to use AP style. So for English majors, that's the biggest thing that we have to teach them is kind of retraining the way that we would write for English classes. And then on the flip side for communications majors, they know the AP style stuff, but they might not be as up on English grammar rules. So then that's where I come in because that's what I can bring to the table. You had mentioned that you have multiple stores that have your paper physically at them mm -hmm. the that are off campus. Well, how do you go about reaching out to those places to put your uh, papers in there? Is that part of your sales team? Well, the distribution routes, those were already set when I took over, um, but we're kind of restarting that process now. So there's only one route, I think, that actually goes off of campus. Um, it's our south route, in case anybody wants to know that. But it goes, we hit a couple of places downtown. We hit um, like the Berry Bagels and the Starbucks at Westgate. Um, Uncle John's Pancake House, I think is one of the places. All of those were kind of set before I took over. But there are a couple of places downtown that maybe they're not 
too interested in us having the paper anymore or um, they're not open at the same time so all of our papers have to be delivered by 11 a.m. on Wednesdays um, if they're not open before then then we can't deliver the paper there anymore so I'm kind of reaching out to businesses now that would maybe consider doing that um, the first places that we would ask for that are you know where do people hang out that would want to read UT's paper and do they advertise with us? Because if they do, then we definitely want to be in there so that they can, one, see their ad every week, um, and two, so that we can kind of have that mutually beneficial relationship so that our word is getting out there and in turn we're getting their word out there more because they're advertising. And then it shows that they, you know, they're using us not just to get their word out, but they're, they want to support the paper. Um, so I'm trying to find more places off campus because I, I think that, you know, we're very well known in UT's community, but. I'm having a lot of hard time with the fundraising side of it because I don't think we have that name recognition in the community yet. I don't think if I just go and say I work at the Independent Collegiate, people are going to be like, oh yeah, that's UT student newspaper. And mm -hmm. I, I want that to happen. So, Do you guys have an um, internet version of the paper? Yeah, we post everything that we write for the paper online. Um, I'm trying to partner with uh, another local nonprofit to see if we can maybe start like a multimedia journalism thing. Um, it's a lot to take on for the staff that we already have. Um, but I'm in this really weird position where almost all of our editors are graduating this year. So I'm going to have like a whole new staff next year. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to see if they would be willing to do that. A lot of college newspapers are starting to incorporate that and maybe doing um, like podcasts or actual audio interviews. So when they go and talk to these people, it would be nice to have something to play for that. Or even just taking videos like on their iPhones would mm -hmm. be really nice um, if they're covering something that's happening on campus, especially breaking news stuff would be really cool. I mean, and it would be kind of cool too because, you know, when you go and interview somebody, they might say something really cool, but it's surrounded by a lot of, you know, ums and ers and weird mm -hmm. pauses that we can't directly quote them, but you want to kind of keep that sense of what they're talking about in the article. So that would kind of eliminate that problem where you get to hear how they're talking about, you know, an event that they put on or fundraising that they're doing. So that would be really awesome to be able to give a more personal note to what's going on. In the yeah, paper. and especially because, I mean, if this podcast has taught me anything, it's that hearing someone's words from their own mouth is a lot more powerful than just having someone else tell you what someone said. Yeah. You know what I mean? So you can hear the passion in someone's voice, and I think it's important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I guess that, going back to an earlier question, I think that would be another problem that we have with brand new staff writers is that they won't want to call or go face-to-face -face for an interview. They'll want to do email interviews. Um, which then gets people to like draft and revise their answers before mm -hmm. they send them back. So then you don't get to hear how someone would actually talk about, right. you know, like the, um, the all night fundraiser that we do on campus. You wouldn't be able to talk about like how crazy that is in the same way if you were like drafting an email and you had, right. you know, 20 minutes to do it. I want to like hear what it actually feels like to be there and, and why that person is putting on that much work for it. Um, so then we'll get kind of dry quotes from mm -hmm. brand new staff writers because you can tell they just did an email interview. After May, after taking this on, what's the biggest thing or the hardest thing that you've had to do? Um, hardest has probably been sales. Um, it's, it's a really hard sell to do print advertising in a newspaper <laughs> um, because as soon as you say newspaper, people think, okay, well, nobody reads us anymore. Uh, which isn't true, um, like our pickup rates and surveys that people do is that people still prefer to have like the hard copy of the newspaper. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's because it like plays into that nostalgia, um, but people still prefer to have that. 
So that's been really tough, especially for me as, as like more of a writing person. Um, selling ads is not, I don't have that sales gene. I just, I just don't get that part of it. Um, and then probably the second hardest part is kind of going off on my own with the nonprofit side of things. So I had to convince the board who's full of salespeople that yes, we should be doing fundraising. And thankfully I have exceeded my fundraising goal for the whole year, um, like three months into the semester. So like now they trust me <laughs> a little oh, bit yeah. more. Um, but it's still, that's, that's really hard. And I had only done, you know, five hours a week of volunteering doing grant writing and fundraising when I was in grad school. So now I'm kind of off doing it on my own in a nonprofit that doesn't fit neatly into any of the funding categories. So, you know, we're not technically arts and humanities and we're not technically education. Um, we're kind of somewhere in the middle of there and, and grants don't work like that. They don't like the middle areas. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that part's been really tricky and kind of going from, you know, like apprentice style learning of grant writing and fundraising to I'm now in charge of that. And I have, interns that answer to me about that um so that's that's been really hard but i'm still learning it so i get to like go to workshops and i get to do mm -hmm. training and i get to learn about all of this cool stuff from people that are way better at it than me and then i get to teach people that too so it's really fun is it still surreal for you or like how long did that feeling last uh, yeah, I'm like, I'm people's boss. Like, it's so weird. Um, Still surreal. <laughs> that part's very strange. Um, but really, my, my editor-in-chief and my staff have been really great about that. Um, you know, I, I'm very upfront about my lack of newspaper experience. So when I first did workshops with them over the summer, I'm like, this is what I do. This is what I know about what you guys do here. Um, I'm a quick learner, but I need you to tell me when I'm doing something wrong or if I'm not doing something that previous advisors had done. Um, so like as big of stuff as like sending out our work for competitions for student journalism that I wasn't aware of when those things were happening or ordering special things when people graduate or plaques for the desk, like office -y stuff that I wasn't aware of. And then even to like really small stuff that, you know, somebody else overheard in the office that because the old advisor wasn't there anymore, we don't have candy in the office anymore. And I'm like, I didn't know that you guys had candy in the office. You had to tell me. So my editor in chief is really good at texting me and saying, hey, this is how we usually do stuff um, at the editorial meetings where we kind of critique our newspaper um, the day after it comes out. If I say something that I think should be corrected, but isn't either like AP style or the way that we would do the paper, they're very open about saying, no, that's not right. Um, and then they just disregard that part of my feedback. And then I get to learn that stuff too. You know, I didn't know any of the newspaper terminology, like what the rail was or taglines or all this other weird stuff that I'm still figuring out. But they're, they're very patient <laughs> with me not knowing that part of it and very receptive to what I do know. Yeah, every time I think about like, newspaper lingo all i imagine is like 1920s kids <laughs> on the street like passing out newspapers and like some guy with a thing in his hat and he's asking weird questions he got a notepad yeah hey buckle yeah, i don't know what advice would you give to young students who want to go into journalism but maybe are worried that they might not be able to stay interested um thankfully we don't have too much boring stuff that we have to cover so that that part is pretty nice um if somebody was kind of hesitant about it, I, I would point out like, it's different every single week. 
Um, so even if like, maybe this is a really slow news week and all we have to cover are like departmental meetings or something like that. Um, next week will be completely different. You know, we never know what the job is going to look like each day other than like we know every deadline is Tuesday night and we know the paper's going to come out on Wednesday. Um, other than that, we don't know what we're going to cover each week because we just kind of have to wait and see what's going on. Um, so that's the, the most fun part of the job for me is that it's every day I get to go in and do something a little bit different. I get to read something different every week. Um, so it's not like you know, comparatively with my experience, like working at the UT Press, I'm not editing the same document for an entire year. And it's a challenge. It yeah. keeps you on your toes. Yeah. And they get, yeah, they get to do something different. So even like if you get stuck covering the student government meeting, then next week you can cover breaking news that happens on campus. If you could do journalism anywhere else, where would you choose to do it? Um, For me, the part that I'm more passionate about is like the editing side of it. I really like being able to do the revision and give them the critiques. Um, so for me, I would really love to start maybe using this experience to learn more about the field of editing in general. You would have a field day with my stuff. Um, <laughs> yeah, so like, yeah, for me, I, I don't have that journalism background. So I don't think if I went out and tried to work at a bigger newspaper or even like a smaller community newspaper, I don't know the things that I would need to know to be a journalist, um, to be a staff writer. I'd have to kind of start from scratch with that. But I do know a lot about editing, so I would be able to maybe use this experience down the road to, you know, edit at a magazine or um, get into, you know, like book editing or something like that. I would really like to do that. Hmm. What? How do you feel like your experience here in Toledo uh, is different than it would be if you were editing a newspaper in, say, New York? Um, I think that we have at least a decent range of things that we can cover. Um, student newspapers, it's a little tricky to compare to like a regular, you know, like a community publication or something like that um, because we are a little more limited on like the scope that we would cover. But I think with this, um, my hardest transition would be if I had to move to an area that has like a very strict style because um, we have a lot of freedom with that. When we get a new editor-in-chief each year, they can kind of change the layout of the paper a little bit, and they can kind of put their own spin on it. You obviously couldn't do something like that with the New York Times, right? Like, you don't... If you're the new editor of the New York Times, you're stuck with how they've been doing things. You might be able to make really small changes, but for me, that would be really difficult to then move to a position that doesn't afford me as much freedom. That does make sense. Yeah, I imagine that you came to the New York Times and started making uh, all kinds of crazy things. People just like, Ex excuse me, we're already having a hard enough time with the New York just Times. Kick me like, out. Yeah, you gotta go. <laughs> um, <clears throat> what do you? What's the craziest story that you've done so far since you took over? Um, there was maybe there were two that kind of caused three that caused a big ruckus. Okay. Uh, this past semester. And all of them, I was like really proud of the work that they did. So I was, I didn't care about the ruckus. And, and they didn't either. We're independent, so we're allowed to do whatever we want. All right, let's hear the ruckus. Um, so the first one was the university put out a diversity survey a couple months ago at the beginning of, um, I think it was in April maybe. Um, so before I took over. And the response rate um, was enough, I guess, for the university to make decisions about, you know, how diverse is our campus. Um, you know, how do students feel about it? How do faculty feel about it? And everything from their report was very positive. Um, our reporters went out and interviewed students and student organizations. And 
they said, no, that diversity survey is not accurate. We do not have enough diversity on campus. We, we feel like it's very isolated or kind of um, everyone's kind of separated into different groups. Um, and there might not be a lot of collaboration between um, organizations that are focused on diversity and the administration or, or other things that are going on on campus. So when we published that, we tried, I think, three times to get um, feedback from the communications department in the, that's like the PR office, um, and we couldn't get anything. So we published what we did have at the time, and the administration was really, really upset that we, we were giving a misconception of, of what people thought, that we didn't, um, fairly, we did not interview faculty and staff. Um, our, our article just covered what the students thought. Um, but that doesn't mean that that makes what the students feel any less true. Um, right. So we stood behind that and it was a brand new staff writer that we had brought on and she really she really stuck to it. And then she did a follow-up article the next week of what the administration and faculty had to say about the diversity survey. Um, so it kind of covered both sides of it. Um, we should have had that coverage in the first article, yes, but again, the way that students feel about diversity on campus that should not be affected by how administration feels about diversity on campus. So that was that was really great. Hell yeah. Yeah. Um, point. <laughs> so like, yeah, it was that was really great. And you pissed somebody um, off. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Yeah, whoever's and, idea that survey was. <laughs> and they do not hesitate to contact us if we piss them off. So but that's I mean, that's part of the job. Right? I mean we're we're independent, so we're not the PR department of the university. We're we're there to report on what we can find. How do those conversations go? Like, are they nice or are they just like, what the hell are you guys doing? Uh, <laughs> they go back and forth. Yeah. <laughs> um, so some people will politely say, hey, I noticed this in there and, you know, you guys maybe don't cover diversity in the same way that I wish you would. Um, and then there are other people that are like, I can't believe that you published this without doing your homework. This is not how this was represented on campus. This is unfair and biased. Um, and if those claims turn out to be true, then we print a retraction. If, if we did screw something up, then, mm. then we print the retraction the next week. And we usually have like a full, um, kind of like a mini column about it saying, you know, we, we published this last week. This is what was wrong. You get a full we regret it. it. Yep. So it's not just like a one sentence retraction hidden in the newspaper. It's, <laughs> it's a full apology. Because as adults, we know that sometimes we're presented with new information and sometimes mm -hmm. we learn things, but that doesn't just mean we're going to retract things unless you present us with new information. Right. It <laughs> needs, we need to have a reason for retracting and mm -hmm. not agreeing with what we publish is not enough of a reason. It needs, just like we're held to the same standards of fact checking, you need to have reasons for your, your anger or whatever. Yeah. Sorry. You're sad. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So if you if you were not independent, mm -hmm. do you feel like they would just be able to shut any of that down? Um, I think that they would definitely have more of an influence um, because that's something that we have considered in the past. Um, being independent, it does affect our budget a lot. Um, we rely solely on ad sales right now to make sure that we are able to pay everybody. Um, so that's one of kind of like the fail-safe options, right? If, if there's no way for us to make up our budget and we can't get enough funding as a nonprofit, we would have to consider going back to the university and that is the absolute no we're never going to do that um, because it does kind of start to create that slippery slope um, it's a lot easier for someone to have influence over the paper if they're funding it so we're really careful to avoid entering back into that relationship um, just to make sure that we we would never have to worry about that problem because that wouldn't be good for either side it, it wouldn't just be a like crappy for us being pushed on what to write, it would also 
create tension with the university that mm-hmm. we certainly don't want to have. Right. Was that the best of the three stories, or should we go into the other two as well? <laughs> um, I can just do the one other one. Um, okay. It was an editorial that I don't think we've ever had more people click on an article. <laughs> Uh-oh. We had, like, I think it ended up being, like, 3,500 clicks on Facebook, and, like, people were really upset. Um, one of our law and social thought students that writes columns for us, um, she used to be a staff writer. Um, she wrote a piece, an editorial piece on our Halloween issue about cultural appropriation and Halloween mm. costumes. And she admitted that, you know, when she was a kid that her mom dressed her up in like a Native American costume or a Pocahontas costume. And now looking back, she understands that's, that that's inappropriate and it's offensive to like treat another person's culture as your a Halloween costume. costume. Mm-hmm. Um, and people really tore us apart for that one. Um, we had so many comments about, you know, how we're snowflakes and everything's like PC now and um, that we're making issues out of nothing. But if you're the person whose culture is being appropriated on Halloween, that's certainly an issue. I mean, that that matters. It, it matters how we're treating other people's cultures. And it's it was an editorial, so it's not like we're reporting and telling you not to do that. Um, it's something that we're free to write that in an editorial piece. Um, but it certainly caused an awful lot of um, response. A hubbub. From, yes, hubbub would be a good word. <laughs> Jeez, yeah, well, I, I, I just think that if those people sat down for five minutes and did some self-reflection on why they're so unbelievably angry about that, mm-hmm. maybe we'd all get to the root of the problem here. Like, yeah. are you really that upset that someone can't, it's like, you shouldn't dress up like a, like a Native American for Halloween. It's like, well, why? Right. It's like, well, why are you so upset about it? My people have been dressing up like Native Americans since we came here, bro. It's like, is that your only Halloween costume idea? Like, did I just fuck up your whole October? Like, what is your problem? Yeah, you certainly shouldn't be that defensive about something that you don't have an issue with. Um, Yeah, I don't understand. It's like, it's not even a problem. It's like, if it's not a problem, why are you so upset about it? Right. It's like, okay, I guess I'll be Mulan instead. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> sure if you got it. Sir, did you understand the conversation? <laughs> um, <clears throat> so, okay, so yeah, I guess you, you run into some pretty crazy stuff. What would you say, I know you said you got up to like 3,500 clicks on that, and that was like mm-hmm. a big one. What would you say your average um, like readership or your, your base is for people who follow the IC? Um, well, for our, our circulation rates, uh, we distribute 4,500 copies a week, and we have about a 75% pickup rate. So nice. whatever that math is, real quick for anybody, I don't, I don't, like just nope. over 3,000 people Which, pick it up. It's fine. Um, but we find that like people who pick up the paper actually read the paper. Um, it's not just people picking it up and then throwing it away. <laughs> we, do, we do track those rates. Um, and then we... We're trying to expand our, our social media presence and things like that to get more clicks onto our website um, and certainly start using that as more of a platform. So I think we have about 3,000 followers between Facebook and our Twitter page, um, which is because I had to do the math for like different ad rates. It's about a tenth of what OSU has for theirs. So like that's the paper that I'm always like shooting for. Like how can we get to that kind of level? Okay. Um, we're obviously much smaller. We're not mm-hmm. we're not as you know big as OSU, but it's good to know kind of like where we are in that scope. So hopefully that helps. Do you usually have more of a struggle finding material to print out in the week, or do you usually have more of a struggle figuring out what to take out because you don't have enough room for everything? 
Um, we kind of go back and forth. So on some of like the smaller content weeks, uh, it's definitely a challenge to find stuff to put in there. Um, because we do rely on staff writers who maybe only come in, you know, they may only have four stories through the whole semester that they need to cover. If they can't get the number of sources that they need or they can't get an opposing view on something, then we can't print that. So we might be counting on three articles for our community section, and if we don't get the sources that we need for it, then we can only print two of those, and then we're scrambling last minute, you know, what can we put in there instead? Um, so what we're trying to do is kind of like build up those extra opinion pieces um, or more like columny kind of things. Mm -hmm. We had an advice column kind of um, in this first issue of the semester that were, it was like six lies that your high school teachers told you about college. Oh, um, so like stuff like that, that we can kind of stick in wherever that people still want to read. Um, but we really don't have control. We can email you and call you 50 times, but if you won't give us a quote for the paper, then we're kind of stuck and we need to figure out something to work around that. Are there ever certain pieces that you release digitally as extra because there's no room in the physical? Um, kind of. What we do with that is we'll do more online. Um, so it's kind of like a creative workaround for that problem. So what I'm trying to do is get previous writers for the Independent Collegian that we have as alumni to maybe do like a guest column or a guest feature on somebody um, and just put those online if we can to kind of increase that digital presence. Um, but if we are, we try to print roughly six pages each issue so it keeps our ad revenue pretty consistent for our goals. Um, if we find out that we have too much content and there's just not enough space for it, we'll cut a story like mid-sentence and say more online so that people have to go online to finish reading that, oh, that makes sense. Um, as a way to work around. That way we're not ignoring a story that's really important, but um, we we might not have the space to print the whole thing. That's yeah. pretty good. That yeah. makes sense. So you still got all the options, but if you want to supersize it, you got to go online. Mm -hmm. <laughs> or sell a lot more ads. I feel you. <laughs> so, okay, ideally then, now you, you mentioned multiple times you guys are trying to sell more ads. Mm -hmm. Ideally, once you sell a certain amount of more ads, is your next step that your paper size increases or what's your goal from there? Yeah, so usually the the length of the paper, um, however many pages we print, is determined by ad revenue. So on years that we maybe had um, like twice as much ad revenue as we needed, we would just increase the paper size. What my editor-in-chief and I decided this year was to kind of to, to combat like the issues where we have too little revenue versus too much. We're just going to print consistently six pages throughout the entire academic year unless we get like 15 ads to where it would only be ads. Mm -hmm. That way we know it's six pages of content that we need covered each week to hopefully solve that problem. Because then the problem that you run into, yes, we might have the budget to increase this to a 10-page paper this week, but if we're doing three pages of fluff to fill in those 10 pages, no that's not worth it for us or for our readers, right? Like you don't want to read just fluff pieces. Um, so we kind of are letting the content in the ad sales determine how much we're printing each week rather than just strictly going off of ad sales. Do you have ways of tracking which content performs better than other content? Yeah, um, most of our readers get to our content through our Facebook page. Um, so if people are reading it online, that's where we'll get the most clicks. Mm -hmm. And then we obviously track things like our bounce rate and things like that um, on our regular website. So our Facebook page, though, is our probably our biggest indicator of which ones are the most popular or controversial or groundbreaking mm. articles. So like the Halloween costume one was the biggest one, I think, of the whole year. And then the physician's assistant program losing its accreditation was probably the second most. Yeah, that's huge. Um, because there was a lot of stuff going on at the university before they lost that accreditation that 
probably could have been fixed to avoid that. Um, and then what does that mean for students that are about to graduate from an unaccredited program? Mm -hmm. And what implications does that have for the other programs at this college? Um, it, it gets a little tricky um, with related programs mostly. Mm -hmm. um, so other stuff in the medical college or things like that. Um, but the, the response to that was pretty swift. Um, if your program loses accreditation, like if you're the chair of that program, you're, you're replaced pretty quickly. Um, and, and everything's kind of restructured. The good thing with those kinds of situations, if there can be a good thing, is that you get a very detailed list of all the things that you were doing wrong and why you lost that accreditation. So it gives you a very, you know, a way to fix it. A nice checklist to go mm -hmm. through. Um, so that's all of those things are being addressed right away. Um, but anything like in the bigger colleges, um, you know, so like our, the UT law test rates for their LSATs, that was a big story that we were maybe not doing as well um, compared to other colleges in Ohio. Anything that has an effect on, on our bigger programs, those are always the articles that people kind of scoop right up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I imagine, especially with people being in those, I mean, the, mm -hmm. bigger, the bigger colleges, so people being there. Um, and the engineering students, like yeah. a bunch of those people, laws huge here. So I imagine when that kind of stuff happens, it's it's uh, important, especially somebody losing their accreditation. Like that's man, all those poor kids. Yeah, um, thankfully, like if you start in an accredited program and then they lose it midway through, like you still technically graduate with the accreditation. So <laughs> those students are good. Think Incoming students that were banking and coming here in the fall, they are not going to be coming here anymore. Like, so that's else. yeah, that's the biggest thing is that it affects it then affects enrollment and things like that, which are very problematic then for the university. That's a bummer, especially with medical field being as big as it is right mm -hmm. now. You know, so to lose that accreditation, that's just a bunch of people who just. All right, going to UT now. Yeah, yeah, and we—I mean, we have strong medical programs, so mm -hmm. it was really surprising that that was the one that lost it. So, ideally, not only anybody who wants to come from any state, but people who plan on coming from another country mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. come to this college yep. just for that. That's yeah, we have a really high international student population, mm -hmm. so like those decisions would be made obviously much earlier in advance than a local resident deciding to go there. Um, yeah. And it's kind of like a tricky spot right now for the university too, because. You know, you have to wait for that accrediting body to make that decision. It's nothing, you can do everything you can with making those changes, but you still have to wait to see if that when was enough. Out or when it pays out. Yeah. Yeah. How long does something like this stay in limbo? Uh, we don't really know, so we're keeping an eye on it, obviously, to cover as soon as we know more information, but we just kind of have to wait. They've already, um, as far as I know, they've resubmitted their, their appeal for the loss of accreditation, and they've addressed almost all of the changes so far that were brought up. Hmm. How do you guys handle your advertising? Um, that's been kind of really tricky for us because I'm walking into it blind. I've never sold anything before. So um, we obviously have people, you know, like Doc Watson's advertises with us every single week. And they have for the past, I don't know, at least five years that I've gone back with previous advertisers that they, they want to support us because they care about the paper. So those ones are kind of the ones that we really value those partnerships, right? Like we don't have to do much to make sure that Doc Watson's keeps advertising with us because they, they want to. Mm -hmm. um, the hardest part is convincing new people to support the paper um, because as a business owner, you might think, okay, well, students don't have a lot of buying power. Mm -hmm. um, so why would I want to market just to them? 
Um, but then we have faculty and staff that are on that read our paper. You know, two thirds of our readership maybe is is grown ups with buying power, not just college students that stereotypically don't have much money. Um, so that part's been really difficult. And then obviously having my husband as a sales manager, you kind of feel like your work is never, you don't get to leave your work Mm -hmm. anywhere. Cause then when I'm getting ready, I'll be like, oh shoot, did you think about contacting, you know, San Marcos because we were talking about it at Christmas. Did you contact them about doing ads? Um, or you're at home and it's 1030 and you're in the middle of an episode of black mirror and you pause it (laughs) and you say, Hey, wait, did you get that thing done or do we need to handle that tonight um, before we wake up tomorrow? Which Mm -hmm. I'm sure drives Tim crazy (laughs) because for me, it doesn't, I'm thinking about it anyway. So then talking about it doesn't take much extra effort. You know, it doesn't interrupt what I'm doing because I'm already thinking about it and it keeps me up at night. I'm like, oh my gosh, who else should we contact about this? And, and it's something that's like always running in my head and then. You know, you mention it when you're talking about going to the grocery store because that is in the same part of my brain as these are things that Tim and I need to get done. Um, so that part is is really hard. Um, and then, you know, especially like the advertisers that we've had for a long time that decide they don't want to advertise anymore. Um, that one is hard for me to not take personally. You know, like they've been supporting us for so long and then what did we do wrong to lose them? Um, and then how do we kind of solve that problem? So that's been a lot of creative problem solving, I think, on, on my end and Tim's end this year. So Josh, did you have any other questions about journalism or the independent collegian that we haven't already touched on? Yeah, I had a few, but I think they're just probably general newspaper questions. Like, who does the assignments for the, the staff writers? Is that just the editors, the section editors? Yep, so it would be the section editors. Um, like, obviously, like, easy stuff. So, like, we have the sports schedule in advance. Mm-hmm. So Sam, our sports editor, can be like, okay, you know, so-and-so, you need to cover these three events. Um, same thing with community. That's mostly like um, philanthropy that student organizations do. So we know when those are coming. We have the academic calendar. The trickiest one is probably Bryce at the news desk because he has to assign things that are bigger stuff coming up. Um, so like the the new tax plan, we covered that mm-hmm. um, because before it went through the Senate, it had the, the thing in there about the graduate stipend mm-hmm. being taxes income. So we had to cover that. We have a large graduate student population. We knew that that one was coming. But if there's something breaking on campus, um, so like my very first semester of teaching, there was a fire that went off in the field house. Um, So like I had to evacuate my students, obviously. Um, We get those UT alerts that tell us about that kind of stuff. So then that's Bryce's job to text his editor or his staff writers right away. Can any of you cover this? And if they can't, then he needs to find somebody that can. If he can't do it, um, and thankfully, our, our staff all works well together. So, um, you know, the opinion editor might go and cover that if it's breaking news, because the most important thing would be getting that covered. Yeah, I guess my next question would be, like, if it's breaking news, is it just like, all right, who wants to, who wants this or who can yeah. do this right now? And Yeah, because we're also working around student schedules. Yeah, I mean, you guys are going to class, people are doing other things. <laughs> right, this isn't their only job. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, the most important thing is, as soon as we get that UT alert or if we see something going on on campus, the texting chain starts right away. Um, so we'll get like unscheduled kind of protests that maybe pop up or um, if there's a bunch of fire trucks outside of Bominati, then we need to be like, hey, who's gonna go over there? Who can get over to the, and see what's going on in the labs? But um, they all they all kind of cover that so well on their own that I don't, I don't need to do any do of that any kind of, of stuff. It's a well-oiled machine over there. Oh yeah. <laughs> the alert only comes to you guys who are with the IC? 
No, no, the UT alert, that's anybody that's affiliated with campus can sign up for it. I think you have to have a UT username and password, um, but maybe not. I feel like I signed Tim up for it when I was in school because that's any emergency alerts on campus. That's how they would tell oh, you if like, okay. classes are canceled. Um, so any stuff. Right? Yeah, any student, faculty, staff, yeah, don't come on campus, avoid this building. Mm -hmm. um, I was picturing the newspaper staff getting this like special alert to their phone, like Team Flash, and they're like, okay, who can call it? <laughs> who can take care of this? Like, no. We got a big news story. We need to get everybody on this stat. No, and then like we follow, like the UT police has a Twitter account. We'll follow accounts like that because then they'll post things that are mm -hmm. going on that maybe don't warrant being notified by UT alerts. Then we follow them. We're like, oh, we should go check out what's going on over there and get some interviews. So we have a lot of ways to find the news that's on campus. Um, we just need to cover it. Hmm. Hell yeah. Any other questions? No, that's basically it. I just want to know how newspaper works. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything that we didn't ask you about journalism or the uh, or the paper itself that you want to touch on that you think is important? Um, I think the biggest thing that I'm noticing from like the general public or even like UT people um when you don't like something that's in a newspaper like following the proper channels and and emailing the editorial staff calling the editorial staff calling that section editor that's the best way to get those problems addressed so we'll still have people that'll you know comment on a facebook story about you know we keep having this group of people that'll comment on all of our sports coverage you know, why don't you interview the student athletes and do a profile on them? Why are you only covering games that happened over a week ago? And their athletic contract, we're not allowed to interview the student athletes. And we don't respond to Facebook posts. It's part of like ethical journalism. We don't get into arguments with people on, on Facebook and social media. But if you had emailed the editor that that concern, we could explain to you that no, we're, we're not allowed to with their contract. We have to go through their PR department. We can't interview the student athletes. Um, same things with like, if they don't like a specific story or an editorial, they can ask us and we'll gladly explain like, this is why we made that decision. This is the information we had to go off of. But I think because social media has made it so easy for people to comment and kind of like put their two cents in, it's it's a lot harder for us to address those concerns or make people aware of, of the work that we do if it's only done through social media because we can't address those. Um, but it, if you email the editors or the editorial staff, we, we can happily go over all of that stuff. And then we can maybe make changes if it's something that we do need to retract and you bring that to our attention. What's well, the catch-22 of social media, though, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody thinks that everything they say on the Internet matters to everyone. Right. And that's the problem is that it, it doesn't. It's just, it's just, it's a it's an echo chamber for your shower thoughts. Right. And especially with stuff like the student athlete story, like we would love to do stuff like that. Oh, you can talk to the student piggy banks. You're not allowed. That's the, right. that's the how college makes money. But if it's stuff like that, that you're seeing a pattern that you really want us to cover something, the more people that ask about it, the, that increases our chances of maybe being able to do that in the future. You know, if, if enough people, if we have 50 letters to the editor about how we should be profiling student athletes and, and, you know, learning what their favorite thing to do is off campus, we might be able to work out a contract with the yeah, athletic department. Yeah, show, like, well, people want to see it, so... Yeah, if we have... But we can't... We certainly can't go to the athletic department with, like, 80 Facebook posts about all the, it. All you, you gotta know, do is pull those comments same. out, see how many likes they have, and be like, this comment has 14 likes. People really want to <laughs> see this Clearly, they want to know. Yeah, so that that's what lines. I would want people to do, is to actually reach out to newspapers or or news sites directly through their editorial staff to address concerns 
And that's a good point, I think, especially right now, because <clears throat> with the state of the country and politics and everything, news and questioning news is every day, yeah. and especially circling in social media. So I guess if a lot of people who are so critical of the news that they hear um, understood the channels they can go through to challenge those things, mm-hmm. um, just listening to the way you described it for your newspaper can be put towards any newspaper, any yeah. any site, really. So that's that's huge. That's a big thing, I guess. Instead of crying about it and commenting on social media, mm-hmm. just follow up with the person that you're mad at. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's why those emails are listed on websites. You can email the editor at almost any organization. Yeah, after every I didn't realize that, but there, there always is a way to get a hold of whoever it is. It's like, oh, this is the writer. Here's the email address. You got a problem? Let them know. Yeah, I've emailed news organizations during my grad program. Um, uh, okay, Lou. <laughs> About the way that they've covered um, issues related to the deaf community. Uh, there was one that they, WTOL reposted it, um, that hearing patrons were really upset at a movie theater because the captions were on when it wasn't listed as a captioned movie. I that. Um, and the news reporter in that case interviewed all of the hearing people there, but they didn't interview any deaf people there. Like, And that's an important thing that they missed. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they also were referring to deaf people with uh, lowercase d, which um, like in the deaf community, capital D means you're a part of the community and the culture, and lowercase d means that you don't identify as deaf. You you are deaf, but you, you don't, don't identify, identify as, okay. you know, big D deaf. Um, and then they also referred to um, people as hard of hearing, which is, or hearing impaired, which is not appropriate at all. Um, and every time, it was twice that I emailed out about that, and I got responses within an hour from their editorial staff that said, I'm sorry we made this mistake. Thank you for bringing it to our attention. Um, and these were, like, random places. Like, I think one was in New Jersey that I emailed, and they emailed me back right away, and I was just a random person that had a concern about it. Um, so news organizations are very receptive to that criticism. It's weird how the world works. Like, mm-hmm. you have no, you don't think about things like that, right? Right. Like how you can affect that. Because now that I'm sure those people will have to do a retraction. Mm-hmm. And all it took was two minutes of you sending an email. Right. Now you could have spent 20 minutes commenting on Facebook about it. And arguing with people that have nothing <laughs> to do with the paper. So right. That's oh, yeah. what tends to happen on our page. That, Getting you know, it'll be mm-hmm. 10 comments going after that that none of you work for the paper and we can't address that concern and it it that part gets really frustrating for me because i want to like explain why we did something the way that we did but you, you can't. can't yeah yeah i'm about to just hop back on facebook and just go and i mean the only group i go into is this group so when I, every time i post a news story I'm like no one's gonna respond to you they can't <laughs> what if what if you did it as an editorial though right like what if you guys literally published an editorial talking about how this works and how you can't respond to them there and how they should follow you wherever or reach out to you however. Duly noted. We have an editorial meeting on Thursday, so I'll bring it up. <laughs> All right. So let's dissipate the air of journalism and let's just have a little bit of, or maybe five, ten minutes of a relaxing, chill conversation before we cut it. So let's start. Do you have any questions with us for us? We usually end with that, but I want to switch it up. Um, I guess my biggest question is, how do you pick the people that are on here? <clears throat> if somebody wants to be on the show, I always give a consideration. But if I think that person's going to need to fill up a notebook before they come here and then try to force facts into this episode, it's not going to sound organic. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be their experience with it. And 
what we really want is people who are living it and can show it from their view. Um, it's how you are able to get misconceptions because unless you're able to actually focus on people who are spending a lot of time doing this and doing it as something that they care about, then misconceptions get overlooked and that's how we are such a fucked society today. When we first started, when I proposed the idea to Josh, it was about careers, mm -hmm. but it, it quickly in season one became more about aspects of life because there's so many things that people don't know about, which is why we focus on different um, parental aspects in season one. Mm -hmm. um, we want to bring on more people from different countries to talk about um, people who've lived in America as well as another country to talk about the differences in culture, things like that. Um, culture shock's always a fun one. Oh, yeah. So moving away from careers, I think... Um, We've, we've experienced, we've started to experience a lot of different things. And the biggest key, I guess, is passion. Because without the passion, you're not going to have a, a real episode. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I mean, and we've even recorded some. We tried to do a, like an anonymous thing um, and, and record like smaller episodes. But, you know, trial and error. And unless you have somebody who is really passionate about something, mm -hmm. and uh, you're not going to have the subject matter really and a little inside baseball um not everyone we record gets released oh, we, yeah. we've we've talked to people who just aren't good behind a microphone like the microphone like this setup mm -hmm. suddenly changes the dynamic of the conversation for them oh so yeah. a lot of times like we'll record it we'll have a conversation with people and then john I'll, I'll go back and edit it and john i'll listen to it and we'll be like this is it no one's gonna listen to this because it's just the um you know, they, they couldn't get through the conversation or they were too nervous or it just, mm -hmm. it just didn't come through right. A lot of times, um, though, we have we've reported people and just been like, all right, well, you know, sorry, <laughs> yeah. this one's not going to work. Alternatively, I mean, we've had guests who weren't comfortable with it either. You mm -hmm. know, uh, mm -hmm. like when this first started, it was, like I said, mostly about careers. I wanted to be able to have a platform where we could show young people like young students who are going to college that either you don't necessarily have to go to college or at least give them some insight onto these things from people who've actually done it before they make the decision. Mm -hmm. um, so it's like, okay, well, let's see. There's this, let's this, let's do this. Let's do a men's hair cutter, let's do this. And then we get a, a, a waitress in here. And I'm after the episode, I'm just like, yeah, this doesn't, this careers is the wrong thing. Like we can't mm -hmm. just focus on careers because nobody's, going to be passionate about being a waitress. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I'm not going to say nobody. In the day that I find a passionate waitress, I'll have her on here because she's going to be able to talk for two hours about being a waitress. Sure. I can give you a whole list. <laughs> I worked in restaurants for 10 years. So and the word is server? <laughs> yeah, there are definitely servers and bartenders that I know that it's, it's one of those weird things, like Tim and I still kind of miss it, that you know, you're on a completely different schedule. Like running errands doesn't suck because you're off on yep. like Tuesdays and Wednesdays during the day. <laughs> um, and you get to like meet all these different people and kind of interact with that. And you're also kind of like independent. You know, you, your manager doesn't go with you to every single table. You mm -hmm. get to like talk to people how you kind of want to. Um, but yeah, it's definitely not a job that like people would dream about going into. But then the people that are a good fit for it, they, they work there forever because they just really like it. Mm -hmm. Right. And honestly, like I served um, on the side when I started selling cars and I really liked it. Mm -hmm. I really liked it. But I don't have a passion for it. Right. I, 
I could sit down and maybe talk about anything for an hour and a half. That's just because I blabbed. Mm-hmm. But I fear that, you know, once I sat down with that, that waitress and she very much enjoys her job, I was like, man, she's been doing this for years at the same place. She loves her job. And it just doesn't feel like what I want this show to feel like. Mm-hmm. This show has to, unless I feel like an episode's able to have the potential to make uh, an effect on someone, then I don't really see a point in producing it. Because this episode has a lot of educational content. This episode is going to have a, a chance if somebody sits down and listens to it, they're going to learn a lot of stuff. It's a little different if you just throw a waitress on just to say, well, we haven't had a waitress yet. Right. You know what I mean? And very early on in season one, we realized that that the show wasn't about careers. It was about aspects of life. And it wasn't until we started recording people and dealing with different levels of passion that we understood where we were. Mm-hmm. And that helps us a little bit, too, in, in going forward in season two. It's almost like there's a lot of stuff that we're doing different now because we know how to do it. And you'll see we have the consistent art. We have our new theme. We have a lots of things that we're doing now because we got the hang of it. Uh-huh. And now we know what we're doing versus, I mean, last year we were just figuring it out. Yeah. So um, in a million answers, I hope that answered your question. Yeah, yeah. yeah no. <laughs> um, Josh. Yeah, no, I think the just the idea of what Joe said, it, it we discovered very early on that it was about people. Um people and their situations and their passions for things because the job anybody can do any job you mm-hmm. know what i mean it's, it's something that i've discovered myself is that i can sit down you can put me anywhere i'm, I'm relatively positive i can figure the job out mm-hmm. i'm not gonna fucking like it yeah you know what i mean and, <laughs> and there's uh, and i know a lot of people especially um you know who just who work their job to survive they're just they're working their job to make uh as a means to an end you mm-hmm. know and it's, it's not like something they have a um you know, passion for, which is why when you meet somebody who has a real fire about what they're doing, it's interesting and you want to know more about their job. And that was the first thing Joe and I realized is that when we, we sat people down um, and the people who really just got into it and started talking to us about everything, everything and anything they possibly could, that's when we realized, okay, that's what it is. It's, mm-hmm. it's people and it's their stories and it's their lives and it's not just, okay, let's talk to a men's hairstylist. Like, right. Okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, know, you, can do, you can do it anywhere. You can ask Google about men's hairstylists, but to talk to somebody who does it and is living it and is, you know, whose drive and passion they wake up every day is like, you know, Nick Dzinski wakes up every morning. He's like, I can't wait to get to work and fucking just sculpt somebody's hair into a better, a better hair. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just, and that's, and that's something I, I think about him. It's like, that seems like a chore to me, but for him, that's what he wakes up and he's like, I can't wait to do it. Mm-hmm. can't wait to go build somebody's confidence today. Yeah. Yeah. It's all about how you, how you see things. And, you know, that's, that's, I think um, that passion is the driving force behind anything. If you don't have passion for something, there's no point in doing it. Mm-hmm. I guess it really, you look at it like a kid can talk to 500 firemen, but he'll never want to be a fireman unless he talks to one fireman who really, really likes his job and has a purpose for his job. Mm-hmm. You know, so I could have 500 people on here talk about journalism because they have, have to do it. And the way that you're talking about it has a much higher chance of reaching someone just because you can hear in the way that you talk about it that you have a very, very deep care and passion for what you do. And apply that to anything, and you can show people who may never have known that they wanted to be a journalist that they want to be a journalist or a men's hairstylist or Mm -hmm. a tattoo artist. People might think they can never be a tattoo artist until they listen that, oh, 
this guy that I know that does tattoos on all my friends literally started from nothing and figured out how to do it and now owns his own tattoo shop. Mm -hmm. I mean, that gives people a lot more of a fire in them, too, I think, just seeing it in other people. And it might show people that they can do something that they didn't even know they wanted to. Yeah, I mean, passion's like a fire. I mean, it can, it can just spark, you know, your passion for something can spark passion in somebody else. And that's mm -hmm. that's really what we hope. We hope that if it, even if it's not just, you know, um, anything, any of the people or the careers or things that we've talked about here, that hopefully hearing someone be passionate about something will push people to find that in their own lives. Mm -hmm. Because I think it's really the only way to enrich your life is to find something you're passionate about and pursue that. Because if you don't, you're just going to kind of drift through life until... You, know, you hit a wall or something happens to you and mm -hmm. you know you just you know i don't want to be affected on like newton's laws you know i, I don't, don't want to just be an object in space who's having things acted upon i mean mm -hmm. I, I want to find the things that i want people to find the things that really get them going and then just full speed ahead yeah what do you think about aliens um i think about aliens almost exactly the same way my high school math teacher described it um so mr Furlick, i don't know if you remember mr Furlick. Mm -hmm. um he said that he thinks that it's incredibly arrogant to presume that we are the only form of intelligent life in not only this galaxy, but the you know thousands of other galaxies that exist. So I think the exact same way. Um, I don't think that my life is important enough for an alien to come down and like abduct me in the middle of the night. Like I'm just like an average person. Um, and certainly like, I don't think that anybody's like out to get us either. You know, like it doesn't seem like we're significant enough to where like any of the sci-fi movies where like aliens are going to come down and like rain hell upon us. Um, but I do think that it's it, it's very arrogant to presume that we're the only people that have figured out how to live. Yeah, no, I I didn't. I guess I haven't really thought about aliens in a while. And recently, one of my <laughs> friends sent me on a conspiracy hole, right? <laughs> but I guess the thing that I've been thinking is. I always really, really, really like have hoped that just held out hope that we can reach other civilizations in space while I'm alive. But now the more that I think about it and the more that I read, I just think like that's probably bad, right? Like these people are probably happy. We don't wanna take us there. <laughs> we are horrible. I think about it and I'm like, no, we're gonna go ruin something good. Gonna get all matrixy, and we're just we gonna should keep shut down stuff. NASA and just <laughs> call it a day. Everyone wallow on Earth. Let this planet just eat itself. Why are we gonna break them too? We already destroyed ourselves. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so much do I want aliens to come here and just say, "Oh, oh don't worry about this planet. We got you. We got like seven other Earths up here. Come pick." You're one. doing it wrong. Please come. I'll show this you how to do it. This was a trial period. It's like, wow, you actually fucked that one up. <laughs> but um. The more I think about it, I'm just worried that we can't even figure shit out on Earth, man. And we've we've known the status quo here for a long time. I think we're the last ones. I think everybody else is already in space. There's a big galactic coalition. They're just like, look at these dummies. They just keep blowing parts of their planet up. They're so stupid. We're never going we're gonna, to we're live in our cool space club. Yeah, I think that's what, I think that's what happened, guys. I think that they just... Everybody already got together and they're like, fuck those guys. <laughs> We have a thing where we usually, we, we stick to kind of the same goofy questions at the end, usually. Mm -hmm. But now that we're in season two, we're approaching this thing where we're having repeat guests like yourself. So yeah. I'm having to reach out and ask questions that I've never asked before. 
Aliens was one. Josh, what do you have? Um, get the cook. Do I have to cook? Do you like to cook? Do I like to? Yeah. Um, Tim and I. Do you have to? Do you have? Do you have to eat? Um, (laughs) (laughs) Is raw food okay for you? It's funny my students made fun of me last week because I didn't eat anything until I had one granola bar until our we got done with our editorial meeting at seven o'clock at night. And they're like, how are you even standing still? I'm like, I just get too busy and I forget to eat. Mm-hmm. So, no, during the day I don't need to eat. I just, like, get sustenance from my work, apparently. Mm-hmm. Um, but Tim and I both really like to cook. Um, and we keep joking that we've been watching a lot of Top Chefs, so we're basically chefs now. Mm-hmm. Um, which we're, we're, like, decent. <laughs> so, um, but we really like to kind of experiment with... If we, we try food that we like, how can we make that at home and how can we make it better? Mm-hmm. Um, so we went to Registry Bistro for, we had never eaten there before. And I got their pork belly carbonara, which was like so good that I like dreamt about it that night. Yes. <laughs> like the best meal I've ever had. So then we went home and we made carbonara three nights in one week, which I don't recommend. Like it's not a light meal. <laughs> That's a lot of pasta. <laughs> <laughs> but we made everything from scratch. We made we made the pasta. We used bacon because we didn't have pork belly. But still, like we we perfected that recipe to make at home, nice. um, and we kept experimenting with that. Um, and then it's the thing that like drives my sister and my mom crazy. Like as soon as we take a bite of something that we cooked, we immediately like start that analysis. Like, okay, well, what what do we need to do to make do this better for next same time? Thing. And for us, it's fun. We we talk mm-hmm. about everything that way. We analyze the movies and TV shows that we watch. We analyze articles that we read. So, of course, it just carries over. And how can we make ourselves better at, at everything that we're doing, and especially with food? So we've been experimenting with more, like, gourmet-style cooking at home um, and, and trying recipes that we see. Like We watch Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives a lot on Hulu. Mm-hmm. So, like, if we see something, we're like, I bet we could do that. And then we just kind of fumble our way through it until it turns out good. Yeah, I uh, was telling um, Becca just yesterday, we went to First Watch. It's like, some, like a brunch place down the street. Oh, yeah. Um, I've heard it's really good. It is really good. But kind of expensive. Everything's, well, it wasn't too bad. I think I paid, we paid 30 bucks for me, her, and Joe to get food. Oh, no, that's not bad. So, um... Everything's there's like organic, everything's mm-hmm. free range. So they're doing more uh, avocado on literally everything in that restaurant. Um, but they have these potatoes, like these, these garlic mm-hmm. potatoes. And I was like, I ate one. And I was like, all right, now how do I make this? Yeah. How do I make this potato? Like, this, this potato is soft all the way through, <laughs> but it's got a crispy outside. I was like, it's not fried. I was like, how do I make this potato? I literally sat there eating the potatoes for like a solid two and a half minutes by myself, silent, just like thinking, about how can I make this potato at yeah. home? <laughs> And yeah. I think, like, every time I eat something, I'm just like, okay, how do they do this? Uh huh. How do, how really do I make fun this to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love cooking. It's my. That's, that's, yeah. I think that's my passion. Yeah, my students. We had our, our independent collegian holiday party, and I did the turkey for it. And like, we're we go like all out with the turkey, so we brined it for like three days, and oh, it's yeah. like a week long process to make this freaking turkey. And I had to learn what spatchcocking is, where you like cut the spine out and you like have to rip it out and then break the breastbones, like. I'm, like, manhandling this turkey in my sink and then, like, soaking it in brine for three days. But then one of my students was like, you should just start charging people and make their holiday dinners for them. I'm like, I don't need another side job. But, like, it's just, like, really fun to, to do that. Because it seems like a really intimidating thing to do. And then I'm like, I'm going to figure out how to do it. So it's really fun. Well, you always have to fall back on, though. You, I mean, you heard her. It's just if anything that goes wrong, just start <laughs> making holiday dinners, and you got your, that's your whole life set. <laughs> and if it's really shitty, I don't need to tell anybody that I made a really shitty turkey. Right. <laughs> we just keep that quiet. Yeah, it's no one else's problem. <laughs> so you had told me before we started recording a story about um, 
two of your students, mm-hmm. uh, and I didn't have a chance to organically bring that up, but I think that that is an important piece to include in the episode. Uh, I think that it's definitely got some substance, so if you don't <laughs> mind going back into that. Yeah, um, so it was, it's my most rewarding teaching moment. I keep joking that I'm going to like frame this student's paper and just like carry it around with me because it's too important to just like hang on my office wall. I want to carry this as proof that discussion can actually change the way that people think about stuff. I always have my students write about stuff that matters to them and they get to pick their topics. Um, so he was writing, this one student was writing about the Confederate flag and the misconceptions that people have about that. So he had a line earlier in his paper that said that, you know, just because random people will bring the Confederate flag to KKK rallies, that does not mean that the Confederate flag is racist. It means that that person who uses the flag is racist. So he he was able to make that distinction. Um, And then later in the paper, he, he had a comment in there about how, of course, we all know that the Black Lives Matter movement is a terrorist organization. So... Like, I crossed that off really aggressively, and I was like, no, you need to do the research on this, because I, I had presented a paper where I cited Black Lives Matter movement um, at a graduate conference and, like, had to do the research on the background of the organization. So I'm like, well, I definitely know more than he does about this movement. So I'm like, no, I'm pretty confident that that's not true. So I... I <laughs> you just put one step forward at the beginning in parentheses, and then later when he, he cites the terrorist thing, you just put in parentheses two steps back. Yeah. <laughs> So I, I had that discussion with him and, um, you know, I said, just like how you can understand the difference between a person bringing this, this flag to a KKK rally does not make that racist. Just because random people are looting during a Black Lives Matter protest does not mean Black Lives Matter is encouraging looting. And he's like, oh, okay, that makes sense. And I got to see the light bulb go off. And then later in the semester, they have the option to turn one of their previous papers into a research paper. So then he actually had to go out and find sources on stuff like this. So he conducted interviews about the Confederate flag. He did research on the history of it. And he did research on Black Lives Matter. And he had a whole paragraph about how he once thought that Black Lives Matter was a terrorist organization. And his professor corrected him. And he said, how can she say that? Like, doesn't she watch the news? Um, And he said that after she explained it to me, um, that just like, you know, with the KKK, it does this. he said, then I understood that it wasn't, and it changed my mind, and then I was more open-minded and was able to talk to people about that movement. Um, so that was that was really great. I felt like my heart grew three sizes that day, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, so people can do that. Um, and then, yeah, he... What was your reaction as you read that? Um, I was about to start weeping, but thankfully there were other people in the office, so that kind of kept me in check because... <laughs> And then, of course, like, I had to Snapchat it immediately. I posted it on my social media and, like, crossed out the things. And then, like, to be able to post it on social media, it, it ended up printing on, like, two separate pieces of paper. And you didn't cite your source. I, no, I couldn't. It's, I'm legally not allowed to post their name. So I had to, like, make sure his name wasn't showing. And then I had to, like, physically cut the paper off to where the header and footer was off. And then I had to tape it together to take a picture of it to post it on social media. But I'm like... This has so to go together. If I knew if I put it as two posts, people wouldn't read it all the way through. And I'm like, you have to read it all the way through. This is an instance where somebody had preconceived misconceptions about an organization. And then after doing the research, actually changed their mind, mm-hmm. which um, I think a lot of people just assume that if you're, you know, if you're racist or if you're sexist or whatever, that those prejudices are going to stay with you forever. But like, this is like, I have living proof in a class that that's not the case that... 
you can change people's minds and you can make them kind of reconsider um, behavior that they, they just took for granted. That's a good point. I think this year specifically, that's a good point. 2018, yeah. people can grow. It was so, so great. I think that's a good place to end it. Yeah, I think we're out of time. So um, is there anything, I, I think the entire episode pretty much was um, a plug, but is there anything specific that you want to plug social media wise, um, a place where people can reach you if they have questions about the paper or anything? Uh, yeah, so I mean the paper is at independentcollegian.com. That one's pretty easy. Um, we're Facebook at iCollegian. I think for almost all of our social media is just lowercase, all one word, iCollegian. Um, I'd encourage people to follow us. Um, definitely like email our editors or me. Um, it's egarapy at independentcollegian.com. So all of our email addresses end in that. Um, any questions about that? Um, especially like if you're looking to support things with with advertising revenue or, or donor support, um, I even as an outside person, if I wasn't running the paper, I think independent journalism, even if you don't support my paper, please support independent journalism because we, we need it to keep places in check. And people. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So uh, you can find me at Joe of the Sound. Uh, you can find us at Set Your Expectations. Oh, yeah. Set Your Expectations everywhere. Um, it's SYE Cast, I think, on Twitter. SYE Cast is the only one on Twitter. I don't know. We're on Twitter. We don't use Twitter. I see notifications for it every morning. Um, and about once a week, I check. And none of them are important. So if you want to send us an important Twitter notification, we'll get back on there. Until then, we're going to be on Instagram at Joe with the Sound. Facebook is where we've been doing a lot of activity. Uh, Facebook.com slash Set Your Expectations. Yeah, and I guess if you have any specific questions for me, because I hate social media, you can email setyourexpectations at gmail.com. <laughs> if you have any specific questions for and Josh, I will ignore it. You can just, you can just ask me, and mm-hmm. I'll ask him on the next show. Yep. That's um, the best. Other than that, no, we're good. That's it. You say bye. <laughs> bye. <laughs> Got it.